0: Welcome back to New Books in Gender Studies. I am the co host of the channel Lolly and Barger. Today I will be speaking with Kimberly Hamlin. She's an associate professor in American Studies and History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Her book, From Eve to Evolution, Darwin, Science, and Women's Rights in the Gilded Age in America, was published by the University of Chicago Press. In her book, she provides a history of how a group of women's rights advocates turn to Charles Darwin's evolutionary theory to answer the eternal woman question. Hamlin's fascinating intellectual history uncovers how the new evolutionary science provided multiple arguments by which to advance the cause of women's rights in the home and society. Many scholars are familiar with the Enlightenment, religious, and socialist origins of feminist thought. Hamlin suggests another significant strand of thought offered by the science of human origins. She argues that Darwinism, often with unorthodox interpretations, was effective in overturning a central ideological obstacle to women's equality, the biblical story of Eve. Charles Darwin's theory against his own conservative views turned upside down the traditional ideas about women. Freethinkers, socialists, sexologists seized on evolutionary science to build arguments against recalcitrant traditional views. They asserted that their contemporary culture was a construct of erroneous ideas calling for change in order to live in accordance with the evolutionary laws of nature. As Reformed Darwinists, Hamlin's subjects stood against social Darwinism, religious teaching, and custom. Yet evolutionary science under, under male control was also deployed to reassert women's subordination. Sex difference as interpreted by many male scientists pointed to female intellectual lack. Women, mostly outside the science establishment, called on the evidence of women's experience against claims of scientific men. Hamlin offers a lucid narrative of how a group of women intervened in a period between the demise of Eve as the meta-narrative for the meaning of womanhood and the masculinist consolidation of evolutionary science. Here is my conversation with Kimberly Hamlin. Let me introduce you to the author, our author today, Kimberly Hamlin. Hello, Kimberly.
1: Hello, Lillian. Thank you so much for having me today.
0: Well, welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, Your book is very interesting. It raises a lot of uh, great questions, both about feminism and science. And I Mm -hmm. love that combination of feminist thought and scientific thought and how it kind of converges together. So tell us a little
1: bit first about yourself your background, and how you came to write this book. Okay, great, and thanks again for having me. I'm delighted to talk with you. Um, I grew up in upstate New York, not far from a lot of the women that I write about, just about an hour from Seneca Falls, um, outside Syracuse, New York, in a town called Millis. I went to uh, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., for college. And after college, I worked for a senator for four years in Washington, Senator Susan Collins of Maine. And then I went to graduate school at the University of Texas in Austin, and in around my second year of graduate school is when I sort of started to put the pieces together that a a through line, if you will, in my interest was always women in leadership, and so um, I could see that now looking back with my tenure with Senator Collins and my research, um, my research interests. and the book um, began as my dissertation, as you probably figured out, and it started actually. My second or third year of graduate school, I was teaching this class called The Rhetoric of Feminism. And this was just a required writing class for undergraduates at the University of Texas at Austin. And so I was, you know, a naive, sort of ambitious graduate student who didn't know any better. And I put together this giant course packet for The Rhetoric of Feminism where I compiled all the pro and con pamphlets and speeches and primary sources that I could find related to Um, pro and con feminist arguments from 1690. I started with Mary Estelle until the current time. So if you could see me now, I'm holding, you know, like a four-inch thick (laughs) course packet. And what struck me in compiling this course packet was how often people talked about Eve. Why can't women go to school Eve? Why can't women vote Eve? Why can't women participate in public life Eve? And the women whose speeches and pamphlets and writings I compiled in this course packet tried really hard to work around Eve, you know, as you probably have studied in your own work, people like Judas Sargent Murray would say, oh, well, you know, if you really consider the story, it was Satan who caused Eve to eat the apple, whereas Adam was only asked by Eve. So really, who's the dummy in this scenario? Is it Adam or Eve? And so they tried to kind of reframe it or say, let's look at the the other version of creation in Genesis, which says that in Christ, there, or not in Christ, we're not to Christ yet, but it says um, there's no male or female in creation. But that those arguments continue to run up against brick walls. So as I was thinking about this, I was also trying to think of a topic for my dissertation, and I wondered if after all these years of, you know, trying to work within this Adam and Eve framework, if when women read evolutionary theory, they thought, oh, oh hmm maybe we can work with this. Maybe this provides a different or better or um, easier to work within framework work for thinking about the differences between men and women. So that was kind of my first question. And that's how I came to, was just compiling this giant course packet and being struck with the Adam and Eve references. And so my research question was just, what did women's rights activists say about Darwin? And were they excited about this new kind of origin story? So I, um, Got several grants and went to the archives and began looking through a lot of 19th century women's rights publications to see what women said about evolution. And in fact, I did find many articles and many speeches where women said, aha, this Darwin guy is great. If we accept this story, then we don't have to talk about Adam and Eve all the time anymore. So that's probably a long answer to your question, but that's how I came to this topic in the first place.
0: Well, I thought that the the title of the book, From Eve to Evolution, was very clever and the, uh, the first cha- in the first chapter, you're talking about Eve's curse and really how hegemonic that whole idea was. Mm-hmm. So let's unpack that for our listeners. What, what was how, how pervasive was this idea, and how did it work?
1: What did it do? Well, I think it did several things. I think the Adam and Eve creation story it not only framed public rhetoric, like I said in my answer to my first question about you know, why women could or could not do certain things. But I think even more importantly, or more um, damaging to women, it really framed how women viewed themselves, what was possible for them. The idea that um, women were a secondary creation to man, made out of man's rib, and then simultaneously responsible for the downfall of humankind and their exile from Eden because of Eve's choice to eat the apple, really framed, as I found in my research, not just public debates, but private relationships between men and women and women's views of themselves. So for example, in that chapter, chapter one that you referenced, I talk about how Adam and Eve provided a um, kind of a framework for democracy. There was a lot of examples kind of in the early Republican America, people trying to decide how our nations should work and how you could have subservience within democracy. And Adam and Eve bolstered that idea of how, you know, gave a, a legitimation or a rationale for how you could frame subservience within democracy. It framed ideas about marriage. Why should the husband get to be in charge? Well, because he ate up the apple and because she was made from Adam's rib. So it really worked on all levels of society. Um, And and, uh, like I said, also in terms of how women viewed themselves, one of the biggest challenges that 19th century women's rights activists faced was convincing other women that they needed women's rights. Um, And a lot of that is because of this This biblical um, Genesis version of creation was so deeply ingrained that 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 was what people thought was natural. So that's sort of the subtext of my book is this question of what is natural. I'm doing hand air quotes, you know, what is natural? What are the natural differences between men and women? What is the natural relationship between husband and wife? And um, and I think evolutionary theory really reframed these debates about what is quote unquote natural.
0: Right, but the, what I noticed too is that the the Darwinist uh, feminists they were also appealing to nature, yes, and and trying to get let's get in line with how nature uh, works. Yes. So let's talk about let's talk go back and talk about, a little bit the the science of feminine humanity, which I thought was really interesting, and Darwin's role in that, and which from what I you know got from your book with Darwin was was conservative, and he really didn't. Uh, create his, his theories to to do what feminists were doing with those theories.
1: Right. <laughs> yes, this is very much a story of unintended consequences. <laughs> very much a, a product of his Victorian era. He was sort of the patriarch of his household. His his wife, Emma, really, you know, doted on him and bore many children and was very traditionally domestic and subservient and very happy to do so Um but um, on the other hand, Darwin did support education of women and he was very supportive of his daughters and in his private correspondence with women, which there's a, a, the larger Darwin correspondence project has a newer arm called the Darwin and Gender Project and they have published on their website several letters that Darwin wrote to individual women and there you can see a more nuanced perspective of Darwin's views on women, but as he was writing his major books, Descent of Man and Origin of Species, the version that comes across as a a more sort of traditionally patriarchal view of the relationship between the sexes. Um, so, yes, this is a story of unintended consequences, but The Science of Feminine Humanity is the title of Chapter 2 of my book, and there I, I look at how women's rights activists used evolutionary theory for feminist purposes. And my goal here was twofold. On the one hand, um, what I found when I reviewed the existing secondary literature on the topic is that most people who write about women in science in the 19th century, say this is really the story of women, you know, getting screwed. Like as soon as science came along, they just looked for ways to naturalize age-old biblical ideas about female inferiority and dress it up in new scientific language. And so on the one hand, that's totally true, that if you look at what male scientists and a lot of male doctors said about the quote-unquote natural reasons for female inferiority, that's the story you find. But I thought to myself, well, what what happens if we look at what women said about science? What happens if we look with what women said in response to a lot of these sexist theories about the differences between men and women? And there I found a very different story. There I found women's extreme enthusiasm for science, partly because of what we just talked about, you know, that it gave an alternative creation story, let them talk about things besides Adam and Eve, and also because women really appreciated The scientific method, as it was emerging during that time, and not only did they appreciate it, the women that I write about, Antoinette Brown-Blackwell, Helen hamilton Gardner, Mary Putnam-Jacobi, also very actively helped create what today we consider the scientific method. And they did so by offering various suit critiques of these very sexist theories that were lobbed against them, such as... Basically,
0: uh, I would ask you about this. Women's involvement in science at that time was indirect, as observers and commentators reading it, but
1: they weren't actually doing it. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I have a section in Chapter 2 called The Gender of Science and the Science of Gender that talks about how in the 1870s and 1880s, which is when women's enthusiasm for science peaked, it was also the time that science started to become professionalized and institutionalized. So whereas some... Um, Some few earlier women had been able to participate more actively in science as, you know, amateur scientists, which was kind of what Darwin was. By the 1880s, 1890s, those avenues were closed as science became something that you needed a credential to do. You needed an institutional affiliation. You needed to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. So it's this brief window in the 1870s, 1880s, where women are enthusiastic about science and there are some venues that women can still publish about science, think about science, write about science, um, before it becomes entirely professionalized and institutionalized, which also makes it really masculine, as Margaret Rossiter and others have shown. So yes, the women I write about um, were participating in an earlier kind of definition of science where you didn't need um, credentials or institutional affiliation where you could observe the animals and plants and nature around you, read the work of others, and respond critically to it. They also published in uh, popular venues like science, Popular Science Monthly, which was not peer-reviewed, as opposed to a journal like Nature, which was peer-reviewed. Um, and they also talked a lot about science in women's clubs, in particular at the through the um, Association for the Advancement of Women. They had a, a an active science uh, group within that organization. So in their women's club network, too, they also talked a lot about science.
0: Now, women at this time were also getting a whiff of the fact that men were shutting them out more and more. So you've got the whole thing of the Smith the
1: Smith yeah. College lab. Talk to me about that. That was really interesting. Okay, great. Thank you. One example that I use in Chapter 2 to show how enthusiastic women were about science and also how controversial women's participation in science was is the story of the Lily Hall of Science at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. Smith, as you probably know, was, was one of the, you know, five sister or seven sisters of the school, the prestigious colleges, all women's colleges that offered women the traditional male curriculum. However, Smith College students lacked a scientific laboratory. So the president of Smith tried really hard to fund one, but this was very controversial because people thought, oh, women, you know, can't participate in science. But he found a, a free thinking um, entrepreneur from the nearby town of Florence, who, because he was a free thinker, also really appreciated the value of science and for women. So he donated the money for this Lily Hall of Science and Women's Rights activists, Smith College students across the country, cheered this creation. It was the first building dedicated for women's scientific study. I have an image of my book, which I really love. It's women engaged in um, studying anatomy and skeletons of vertebrates, and they've got all their beakers and lab equipment out on display, and um, you can really see their enthusiasm in this image. So that was one example I used to show um, of, of many just how enthusiastic women were for science and also how the doors of science were at the same time being closed to them. Also, a lot of the women I write about, like Antoinette Brown Blackwell and Helen Hamilton Gardner, offered really trenchant comments about this very same contradiction that women love science, women are making science better, and at the same time, we are being excluded from it.
0: Well, part of it wasn't the Victorian notion that women were frail, bodily, their bodies were weak, therefore their minds were weak. There was this connection mm-hmm. between the body and the mind. Yes. And so exactly. part of the scientific uh, effort that you're talking about in your book is women trying to demonstrate that pregnancy and lactation and all these things
1: are not weak. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's the one of the main examples I talk about in Chapter 2, which is sort of well known among these 19th century debates about women. It's the Um, the book by Dr. Edward Clark, a Harvard eyes, ears, and throat doctor, who was inspired to turn his attentions to women's physiology by the question of whether or not women should be admitted to Harvard uh, in the 1870s. So Dr. Clark said, no, absolutely, women should not be admitted to Harvard. And he wrote a book detailing why. And it's called Sex and Education or a Fair Chance for the Girls. And his main point was just what you said, that this is a, one of his quotes. He said, the, the brain and the body cannot functionate at the same time. So he said, women going to college at the same time that their bodies are supposed to be developing and getting ready to have babies is a terrible idea. He, he warned that a third gender would evolve, um, which he called a gene, which was he compared to the sexless class of termites. So he you know he made all these dire predictions about how women's bodies would shut down if they pursued, you know, mental exertion at the same time that their reproductive capacities were blossoming. So, um, and that story is kind of well told as an example of this sexist science of the 19th century. But what I thought was really interesting was the ways in which women's rights activists rallied to oppose Clark. So, if you look at the women's rights magazines, like the Woodburn uh, newspapers, like the Women's Journal, the Women's Tribune, Almost every issue has a story about Dr. Clark, what they're doing to denounce Dr. Clark, how he's wrong, why he's wrong. I also surveyed um, to see how many books were written in opposition to Clark. I found several books, several articles, poems, novels, all written by women and a few men, male women's rights activists denouncing Clark, not just for his um, conclusions, which they believed were mistaken, about the link between menstruation and um weakness but also for his methods Um, and that was sort of the larger point of my chapter is women just weren't saying oh no you're wrong they were saying you know your science is wrong your science could be better these methods are not objective they make no sense and the the woman who finally undercut Clark's arguments about menstruation was Dr. Mary Putnam Jacoby and not just um, again not just by saying that his arguments made no sense but by providing a much better scientific model so Clark when he When he asked how does menstruation affect women going to college, you know, who do you think he asked? Did he ask women? Did he ask college students? No, he didn't. He asked his male friends for second or third-hand anecdote, you know, so now we laugh, right? That's a ridiculous way to do science. But at the time, people thought, oh, sure. And so part of Mary putnam Jacoby and the women I write about argument was to say, like, if you want to know about women's bodies, you have to ask women. You have to look at women. You can't just count on the third-hand or second-hand testimony of your male colleagues. So. Mary Putnam Jacoby's book, The Question of Rest During Menstruation, provided the, the biggest, most comprehensive survey of what regular actual women experienced during menstruation. And she found that no, they weren't weakened or debilitated, and that in fact what made it them feel worse was sitting around doing nothing. And what made them feel healthy throughout the month was exercising, being active, going to school. So um, she undercut his argument, but then this chapter end, chapter two ends. Um, Because I keep kind of looking at this Clark debate, and I see that after Clark's ideas about menstruation got discredited, he simply looked for a new way to say that women were inferior. So his new way to say that women were inferior was their brains. He drew on the work of another pioneering male doctor, William Hammond, who was the founder of the American – he was a founding neurologist and founded the American Association of Neurology. And was it one of its first presidents? And he said that women's brains were inferior to men's in 19 distinct ways. So Clark drew on that work to say, well, now women can't go to college, not because of their periods, but because their brains are inferior. So, and then I traced the women who responded to that claim, including Helen Hamilton Gardner, who is the subject of my current project, um, who published many speeches and articles against um, Hammond's theory of women's brains, and then ultimately donated her own brain to Cornell University was Burt Wilder Brain Collection, where it remains on display today in Cornell's psychology department. In case you're ever in Ithaca, you can go see it. Um, But she donated her brain to prove that women's brains were not structurally inferior to men's. And
0: it it was her brain because she was an educated woman, she was intellectually engaged, and she, she wanted to show that a brain that was intellectually engaged between men and women, it wasn't going to be different. Exactly, right, but there was a couple of things in this in this chapter too where you talk about how women had to really appeal to women's experience mm-hmm. a lot in mm-hmm. order because they weren't doing a lot of direct science they had to say the science versus shoddy methods, but also yeah. our experience, and I think that this thing about women's experience mm-hmm. is really key for understanding a lot that came
1: after that. yes, that is a great point um. And that is what a lot of the women who responded to Clark said. They weren't, you know, in with the exception of Mary putnam Jacoby, they weren't in laboratories or conducting surveys. They were saying, this is not true to my experience. Antoinette Brown-Blackwell said, you know, she had seven children, five of whom survived into adulthood, and she said, this just makes no sense. I went to college. I've had seven kids. What Clark says is simply not true. One of my favorite examples of this emphasis on experience that you highlight is um, a woman named Eliza Bisbee-Dufay wrote an advice book for women in the wake of Clark and very much in response to Clark. And it has the word or variant of the word woman four times in the title. What women should know about women, an advice book for women by a woman. So she's really trying to say (laughs) you need to ask women or, you know, if you want to know what women's bodies are like. Let's go back to
0: Darwin. How did, he, how did women appeal to the animal world and what was happening in other species to sort of make their case for what should be happening with the human animal?
1: That was one of my favorite findings in this book is the creative and fascinating ways that w- women drew on human-animal kinship to make feminist arguments. So earlier we talked about the origin stories. And so as in comparing and contrasting the Adam and Eve origin story with a evolutionary origin story, you know, I had to think through, okay, what is the same? What is different? What are some new possibilities this offers? And the most striking one is this: the the very clear argument that Darwin makes that humans are not descended from animals. Humans are animals, that we are one type of animal. So a lot of the women that I write about found that really kind of exhilarating because it provided a whole new range of examples and possibilities for gendered relationships and power dynamics. So, for example, Antoinette Brown-Blackwell, for one, looked through the animal kingdom, and when she looked at the animal kingdom, she found examples of um, male animals who care for young, male fish who carry the eggs in their bronchial tubes, and do all sorts of what humans would consider feminine tasks. So comparing humans to animals for women opened up all these new possibilities and really kind of displaced the idea that patriarchy was natural. When, because when they looked to animals, they found that patriarchy was not natural. Uh, and one of the the clearest lines they drew or arguments they drew from this line of thought was to argue that women should be able to work outside the home for money. So this is kind of the basis of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's many books, starting with and including Women in Economics, her most famous publication from 1898. And so what Gilman and a lot of the women I write about said is that humans are the only species in which the female is dependent upon the male for food and that this is totally counter evolutionary it makes no sense it's not good for the strength of the individual women it's not good for the offspring to have one half of the species utterly dependent upon the other and it has no natural precedent the women said okay if as educated people we're supposed to believe in evolution and if evolution shows us that humans are animals then let's follow this through to its logical consequence and and behave more like the animals in this well and, and and stop thinking that patriarchy and female dependence upon mm-hmm. men is quote unquote natural.
0: The uh, what's tied into this also is the whole uh Darwin's theory of sex choice. Uh-huh. Yes. Sex selection. So mm-hmm. that's I thought that was very interesting and I'd like to hear more about that.
1: Okay. <clears throat> so in addition to this idea that Women should be allowed to work outside the home because that mirrors more what happens uh, in the animal kingdom. Women also argued that the females of the human race should be allowed to play the most active role, the role of selector, when it comes to sex. So a key element in Darwin's theory of sexual selection, which he introduces, and in, when well, not introduced, he talked about it in Origin of Species, but which he explains in The Descent of Man Um, is the concept of female choice. So Darwin said that um, he first argued that sexual selection was equally, if not more important than natural selection as an evolutionary mechanism, which was very controversial at the time, but he remained convinced of this to his death. And he said that within sexual selection theory, there is two main elements. One was male battle. He said males battled either, you know, with their horns or tusks or um, to display their finery like the peacock's feathers. Males battled for the attention of the females. And then the females and all species except for humans, Darwin said, the females chose um, with which which male to mate with. So, again, women made this argument that basically said, okay, again, if humans are supposed to be animals, then why are we the only species among all the other animals in which we, the females don't choose? They said it's counter it leads to weakened offspring. It makes no sense. And the women who were most apt to take up this argument were socialists. So the chapter four of my book is about how this concept of female choice kind of traveled and resonated through socialist and um, sex reform circles at the turn of the 20th century. Now you might ask, okay, why did socialists most like this argument? Socialists like this argument because they are. They said that in order for women to freely choose their mates, they also have to be economically self-sufficient. Because there's no such thing as free choice when you need a man to have food on your table and a roof over your head. There, then you know there's no there's no freedom in such a choice. So they liked this idea because it allowed them to talk about female economic independence at the same time that they could talk about female reproductive autonomy. So I, as I said, I trace this idea around and I follow it. Um, to Margaret Sanger, who was very much influenced by the uh, socialist and sexologist iterations of the concept of female choice and the idea that it was natural that was sort of a big selling point for these reformers who were saying you know radical things about female sexual autonomy. So for them to be able to say this, these aren't radical ideas, these are natural ideas. Darwin himself said as much gave them a lot of I'm not the courage to, to make these points.
0: One thing you don't talk about, I don't think you talk, you've brought it up Mm -hmm. in in your conversation here about uh, the emphasis on the natural. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And can you talk a little bit about that? What is the natural? Because, you know, the religious argument was this is natural based on what God designed. Right. So there you there's still it's like natural is set over against culture. Because culture is artificial in terms of keeping women in the home, keeping women frail—that's an artificial construct mm-hmm. of culture, and we need to go back to the natural. Right. Did they yes. have an understanding? Did they have an understanding of this uh, opposition that they're setting up between
1: culture and nature? And yes, I think they very much did. Especially Helen Hamilton Gardner, the woman who donated her brain to science. The, a lot of the arguments that she made against. William Hammond's theory of brain inferiority, were on this exact topic of nature versus culture. So when she critiqued Hammond's methods, as you mentioned earlier, when Hammond studied brains, he, first of all, knew if they were male or female, and second of all, his male brains had been donated by, you know, the most eminent thinkers of the time, and he compared these eminent male brains to female hospital pickups, as Gardner called them, and women who had died anonymously on the streets or in public hospitals. So she, for, so as, as, I, as we talked about earlier, she wanted to donate her own brain so that for the first time, science can study the brain of an educated woman and compare that to a brain of an educated man. But she also kind of thought through Hammond's method and said, if you really want to know if there's differences between male and female brains, you should really study the brains of infants, because otherwise, if you study the brains of adults, the influence of culture could could be at play. So if, in fact, you do find differences between male and female adult brains, who's to say whether or not that's nature or culture? Those weren't the exact words to use, but that's sort of what she's getting at, that you know, what accounts for sex difference? Is it nature or culture? And that's precisely the question a lot of the women that I write about were grappling with, and to them, as you suggest, evolutionary theory offered um, a new version, if you will, of the natural. Now, as people who write about Darwin have argued very persuasively, Darwin's version of nature is highly cultured too. How Darwin describes nature, how Darwin depicts nature is very much a product of his environment and the the strutting male peacocks and the coy peahens he describes have more to do with the men and women of London that he knew than with the peacocks he observed. Um, so, in this version of nature that the, that the women I write about were drawn to, it was still very much about culture. And I think that shows kind of where more modern thinkers on this topic come down. And that is that you can't really separate nature from culture, that it's a false binary, that nature informs culture just as culture informs nature, and that there's no such um, distinction as people previously thought. But to answer your question, yes, this is very much the debate that that the women I write about were trying to have.
0: So this is sort of an early anthropology. Before mm-hmm. we have modern anthropology, they're asking these anthropological questions. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if there was anything, I don't think I saw it in your book, was there anything about uh, looking at other human cultures and had they structured their societies at this point or not? Were they just looking at animals, you know, other,
1: other species? Other 19th century women... I think you, I think you're familiar with some of the work, people who wrote about the matriarchate and early matriarchal societies. So, like Matilda Jocelyn Gage was really influenced by this um, 19th century early anthropological tradition of looking backwards in time and trying to find a matriarchal golden age. So, yes, other other 19th century women's rights activists very much tried to compare um, their current situation to other human societies, either. In other parts of the world, concurrently or previously, but the women I write about, um, women who mostly were looking to animals, okay. I think I have a couple of paragraphs saying that you know there's this matriarchal context, but a lot of other people have written about that, so I didn't focus on that too much in my book. But yes, there's definitely that history too.
0: Now they had opposition within the women's rights movement. Mm-hmm. They were a very the women you're talking about are are a, a, nor, a minority voice to say the least. And they quickly were sort of marginalized to a large extent and sort of shut out. Yes. Why? Is it religious? Is it religious reasons? Was it because they were too controversial? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. (laughs) All those things. Yes and yes. Um, That is a a great summation of what I'm trying to argue and what I was trying to figure out, because a lot of the women I write about were – really kind of mainstream women's rights activists in the 1870s 1880s but they got shut out in the 1890s so these are women who include Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her circle and what i found was that debates about religion played a huge role in the the 1890 merger of the two main suffrage groups the American Women's Suffrage Association and the National Women's Suffrage Association Elizabeth Cady Stanton was the the head with Susan B. Anthony of the NWSA. And so they, but was Stanton, was um, much more intrigued by science, much less interested in orthodox religion. You know, she said things like, marriage is legalized prostitution. She was open to evolutionary thinking. She became close friends with Helen Hamilton Gardner. Um, so the women I write about were um, the ones who opposed this 1890 merger between the two groups because to them, It represented the triumph of a more limited and orthodox and conservative version of women's rights that not only focused more on the vote and less on these other issues about marriage and economic equality, but also that really um, tethered the women's suffrage movement, or uh, as they now saw it, with the women's Christian temperance union and really shifted the rhetoric to um, a more traditionally Christian, Viewpoints, which you know, you could argue, like some of the women who supported the merger didn't necessarily believe in this themselves, but they thought it was strategic to make that argument that that women's suffrage was, you know, the next the next logical reform movement that it was in line with Christian orthodoxy, and that women could help purify politics. So the women I write about rejected all of that, and they firmly believed, as I try to make the case in chapter one, that. At the root of women's subservience and exclusion from society was the orthodox Christian belief that women were made from Adam's rib to be men's helpers and also that they caused the downfall of society. So Stanton, for example, brought forth resolutions at several NWSA uh, meetings in the 1870s, 1880s, encouraging the women to condemn any organized group religious group that said women were inferior as a result of creation. She then wrote a book called the woman or two books. It was in two volumes called the woman's Bible in 1895 and 1898, elucidating and expanding this point. And she really felt like that was going to be her major contribution to women's rights was clearing up as she's called it, the confusion of creation.
0: So it's sort of like uh, the difference between very roughly, it's like the main movement was liberal, but these women were cultural feminists who really believed that the problem was more than just getting the vote. The problems were cultural problems. They were deeply ingrained in how we thought about men and women.
1: Yes, and I don't know if the two groups, I mean, the two groups may, and I think in some cases did, agree on that point, but they disagreed strategically. So, you know, I think Susan B. Anthony, Stan's longtime Alley, probably agreed with her, but she also thought, you know what? You know, Elizabeth Stan, if we go around saying marriage is legalized prostitution <laughs> and Christianity is designed to degrade women, we're never going to get the vote. So I think she may have just been more strategic in her thinking, not necessarily more religious. Right. Or not
0: that she wasn't concerned about the cultural aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But she just thought it's more practical for us to get the vote first. And mm-hmm. we know from Lisa to Charles' uh, yeah. work in the myth of Seneca Falls, what was going on there, so, mm-hmm. okay, Fasc- this is really fascinating, it's so oh, yes. interesting, so, so did, right. did you, you didn't talk a lot about this, but I, I, you did insinuate it in your book, what kind of pushback did they get from male scientists, were they just ignored, mm-hmm. did were oh. they, they they'd respond to them in writing and say, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is, you know, <laughs> out of line, you know, she should go home and have babies, or
1: how did they respond? Yeah, um, there was some of that, so, the women who did publish in with scientific publications like Popular Science Monthly, they were generally denounced by male scientists. So, for example, Helen Hamilton Gardner had a, a really fascinating and lively debate with William Hammond, the, the guy whose brain theory she was trying to disprove, in the letters to the editor section of Popular Science Monthly, and he said precisely those things. Like, he he even made fun of her for using italics. And he said, oh, you know, I've wasted too much time on you You and your feminine proclivity to use italics, and you have no idea about science. Um, And she was trying to say that, you know, his science was bad because he had uh, non-objective methods, um, so that he very much did, you know, ad hominem attacks on her. And that was pretty much par for the course for the men who did respond to women, but I think the more common reaction of the male scientists towards the women I write about was to ignore them. Um, another review that comes to mind is the Popular Science Monthly review of Antoinette Brown Blackwell's book, The Sexes Throughout Nature, which was published in 1875. It was the first uh, feminist response to evolutionary theory and Popular Science Monthly responded and basically said kind of patronizing like, Oh, so nice, you know, little Miss Blackwell that you took the time to write this book. You know, it's so cute that you wrote a book. Um, But they then went through and, and totally took apart her arguments and the argument they objected to most was the idea that um, that women's maternity did not set them apart. So we talked about Blackwell a little bit earlier in, in the question about animals and Blackwell looked a lot to the animal kingdom and in her book. She had charts that compared um, the males and females of all species leading up to humans and she gave them plus and minus columns for various traits. And one trait that she did not give special credit for women to was maternity. She considered both men, males and females um, as contributing to parenthood. So this was what really set the Popular Science Monthly reviewer off. They said, oh, in your list of pluses and minuses, you didn't even include maternity, the special gift of you know the female sex, which makes them not equal to men, but superior. So how could we possibly believe your other arguments when you don't even think maternity makes women superior? That was interesting,
0: too, that this was a double-edged sword. This evolutionary science was a double-edged sword. It, because other people were arguing that uh, evolution showed that women were superior because they were maternal, and therefore yes. they needed to be mothers because yes. this was their highest calling for the yes. species. So exactly. I found that it was ironic that it got, tur- it got turned on them a lot.
1: Yes, it was, people made all sorts of arguments. Um, very contradicting arguments about what was natural, about what evolutionary theory meant for women, men, and women, and a lot of contra- a lot of these contradictions can be seen in the arguments about female um, female reproduction and their role in maternity. So, some of the women I write about not only talked about um, women being superior to men because they were the ones who could um, produce babies and also feed them from their own bodies. That was the argument of Eliza Burt Gamble. She said. How dare evolutionists say men are superior? Women are the ones who provide nutrition for babies, and also through breastfeeding, you know. Um, but again, like you point out, that's a double-edged sword because then you're setting yourself up to perhaps spend, you know, most of your adult life <laughs> doing that, which is not what these women wanted to do.
0: And there was also arguments that we used the Bible was also used to explain, and you talk about this uh, that w- because woman was the last in creation, and God created from the lowest to the highest in the species. Therefore, woman was the top of the heap, which is an (laughs) argument that you still hear, I think, among uh, cultural feminists, radical cultural Mm -hmm. feminists who would argue that. Mm
1: -hmm. uh, Yes. So I'm not saying, you know, I don't I'm not saying that these the women I write about had the correct interpretation of evolutionary theory. I think there were, you know, many (laughs) myriad conflicting interpretations of evolutionary theory. But this is one interesting interpretation that we have not yet heard much about and that I think had important ramifications uh, in the women's rights movement in terms of the splintering that happened around 1890 and also in terms of the development and the origins of the birth control movement.
0: Well, also, because there was so much controversy about Darwinism and there was a huge, you know, large Mm anti-Darwinism force that our anti-Darwinism got equated with anti-woman. Yes. And it was like, if you're for Darwin, then you're for women, you know, ha- being just like men. Mm-hmm. Or it, it, it all got, it was interesting how all the <laughs> arguments got convoluted and crossed wise and everybody yes. was kind of, which it, it's totally what you said, this, the ideas have, uh, have, um, have consequences that are
1: unintended often. Mm-hmm. And this was a really great example of that. Yes. And it also was an example of historical, um, just sort of happenstance. I mean, not exact happenstance, but one of the reasons that um, traditionalists associated Darwinism with feminism is partly that they happened at the same time. Um, and so, in a lot of, so I have some reviews. I think in chapter one, where this, where I kind of tease out this line of argument that was used to oppose both evolution and women's rights, which was this just um, traditional view of society, and so people were afraid that, oh gosh, now not only do we have to grapple with evolution, now we have to grapple with women's rights, Ah, you know, it's the end of civilization, it's the end of life as we know it, so they were kind of grouped together as examples of new modern thought that threatened the old order.
0: But also evolutionary theory could support the argument that, because humanity is is evolving, that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, middle class or elite culture was the highest evolution Of humanity, Mm -hmm. so if women are in the home as Victorian women were, and the men were out in the the marketplace, this was part of nature.
1: Yes, that is that is what Darwin said. That's what Spencer said. That's what Edward Clark said. Um, Edward Clark paraphrased Darwin in saying that differentiation is nature's method of ascent. So how do we know that middle class white people are superior? Oh, we know that middle class white people are superior because they are the most differentiated. As you said, the husbands go out of the home and the women stay in the home.
0: And there's also the whole issue that you that you talk about. You don't uh, you spend a lot of time on it, but it's, it's we have to talk about it. The racism <laughs> the racism that's yeah. implicit in yeah. all this among you know, among the, these uh, Darwinist reformers or reformed Darwinists, as you call them. Um, yeah. And it was it was like, we want to argue for white-educated women, which left, you know, uh, a lot of undesirable people mm-hmm. out of it, quote-unquote. So can you um, talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So this is um, a huge issue and topic, obviously, and much has been written about it um, by others. So, uh, for example, Gail Biederman, Louise Michelle Newman, the ways in which evolutionary thinking um bolstered white racial ideas about white racial supremacy so in evolutionary hierarchies created not as much by darwin although a little bit but by many of his acolytes and followers created a, a kind of a ladder of civilization that you just alluded to where uncivilized not white people are at the bottom and civilized quote-unquote white people are at the top so The women that I write about were very much, um, you know, part of the era in which this was taken for granted as a given. So a lot of what they wrote about popularized the same idea that white civilized people are on the top. And the women I write about were basically saying that they needed to not be grouped with non-white peoples, but that they had been placed on the wrong rung of this ladder of civilization, that they should be on that, you know, higher up rung along with the middle-class educated white men. So they were informed by this kind of evolutionary hierarchical thinking. Although I do want to say that I don't think it's historically accurate or fair to charge them with racism because a lot of the women I write about would not remotely have been considered racist in their day. They opposed lynching. They worked for abolition. They worked with African-Americans. So while today's standards, we would consider them racist, mm-hmm. in their own time, they were not. So I think a lot of scholars, especially literary scholars, for example, who may not be as familiar or interested in a historical context, often claim that people like Charlotte Perkins-Gillen, you know, we should dismiss them because they're racist, or Elizabeth Cadystein, we should dismiss them because they're racist. And I really don't think that that is fair or true. I think we should put them in their historical context, understand the options that they had, understand the worldviews that prevailed at their time, what influenced them, and of course, you know, denounce them when they said racist things, but not, you know, out of hand.
0: Right. I understand. I think I think that's fair. What you're saying. I think it's definitely fair. What you're saying. Uh, I was interested, though, how they constructed their own arguments for themselves mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, deploying yes. other races as sort of we're not like them. We are different from them. Yeah. Um, Whether that's that's full-blown racism, that's a contextual question.
1: But But yes, they definitely used racial ideology and racial language to say, we are not like these non-white others. We are like the white men that, you know, we are married to. (laughs) Put us on the same rung as these guys. So, yes, it was very much a racialized argument, as Louise Michelle Newman and Gail Biederman and others have established.
0: There was other things going on, too. Uh, I'm I'm backtracking here a little bit. Uh, gynecology was being developed uh, mm-hmm. and that was also sort of feeding into this mm-hmm. in terms of women's bodies being sort of stripped of all their all this mystery of procreation uh, and that women, they fit pregnancy. That was the term that you yes. used.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so this was one aspect, I, I think, of the popular and scientific reception of Darwin that pro and con women's rights activists could agree upon that the old idea that pregnancy was a curse eve's curse <laughs> in particular um, should be dis- should be discarded because it no longer made sense in an evolutionary age to think of pregnancy as a curse or as a disease I in my book I cited some examples from older medical textbooks where they called you know explicitly called pregnancy a disease and a mysterious disease that women shouldn't bother trying to figure out they should just kind of abide the suffering just like their foremother eve did but in a new kind of darwinian age that didn't make any sense when you think about reproduction as driving the evolutionary process it made more sense to think of um, pregnancy as a healthy and natural function and not as a disease model so um, doctors and women's rights activists agreed on this point that people should start thinking about pregnancy in terms of health encouraging women to exercise to not be invalids the whole time um, <clears throat> excuse me which so, is our yeah.
0: to- it's our total age today
1: I mean yes, today exactly. it's um, that's where we got it yeah if you're not running a marathon while you're eight months pregnant right what are you doing
0: <laughs> um, let me ask you another question you know we all kind of look at intellectual history here. We know the Enlightenment and the socialist and the religious sort of roots, ideas that fed feminist thought, that it's a very complex history with lots of things feeding mm-hmm. into it. Would you, would you say that Darwin Indian science or the science of human origins would be another major contributor to this mix mm-hmm. of how yes. feminist thought has advanced or developed?
1: Yes, that is precisely one of my main arguments. Um, and as we talked about earlier, I was I was trying to make the case that this, this history has sort of been obscured because the women I write about were so distant from mainstream women's rights activism after 1890, so they weren't publishing in the women's rights journals anymore necessarily. They were publishing in free thought journals, sexology journals, socialist journals. So this other aspect that was really vital at the time has been um, a little bit obscured to, to historians. So I wanted to highlight this other this other major influence on turn of the 20th century feminist thought.
0: Okay. It's, and uh, when I'm reading it, it's okay. Presentism is showing up. Okay. Cause I'm reading this and I'm going, this sounds like so many things we're still arguing about or <laughs> still thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, the whole idea of women's health and how doctors dominated and, you know, scientific studies on women's bodies or, or you know, they're using yeah. male models and then applying the results to women. I mean, we're, it's, it's, and ending. Yeah, so, and it, how do you see uh, those women really impacting, I think? And this is not, you don't deal with this in your book, but I think it's really important. I think you could probably give us a very learned response to this. How does this feed, I think, into the 20th century in terms of uh, what happened with the feminist movement, with women generally in the culture? You know, sometimes the people who are the minority mm-hmm. uh, end up having much more influence than their numbers. Mm-hmm. which is what I see here.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have. I have, would say I have two answers to that question about what, would, what do these women have to teach us about today or what would they say about today. And one, I would say, is that I hope that my book shows that this 20th and 21st century idea that we have that somehow science, and in particular evolutionary science and feminism are at odds, is mistaken. That is an idea that's... Um, as you know an important history and for much of the 20th century you could very clearly make that case But I think that these women show us a road not taken a road uh, or a possible avenue of you know Feminist science feminist ev- feminist evolutionary science. So I think that's um one legacy They leave is this importance of understanding that feminism and science Often and should go hand in hand and that they are not at odds um, and the second uh now I've forgotten my. Sec- oh, the second um, legacy or idea I think they would want us to think about is is to always consider the historical context and the scientific, um, and to think critically about the science of any studies of sex difference. So that was when you when you started this um, line of questioning by saying that you kept thinking of present day things. As I was writing this book, that came up so many times that you know there would be a new study about women's brains different from men's. And I think, oh gosh, here we go again. Like now what's like every generation has a different, you know, technology to study the brain, but they come up with the same sort of basic answers about the differences between men's and women's brains. Another really bold example of this that stood out to me, um, one, of the, one of the really popular 19th century Darwinian theories about female inferiority was called greater male variability. I talk about this a little bit in chapter two and it's taken up much more um, in depth by Rosalind Rosenberg and also uh, Cynthia Eagle-Russet in her book, Sexual Science. But this theory um, held that men were, again, quote unquote, naturally more variable than women because they participated more actively in the struggle to survive. Therefore, supposedly men, there are you know more male idiots and more male geniuses, whereas women supposedly clus- clustered around the middle. So the first generation of female social scientists who graduated from Columbia, Helen Bradford Thompson and Lita Sutter-Hollingsworth, disproved this theory, um, which was very um, influential at the turn of the 20th century, but it keeps popping up again and again. So the most famous semi-recent example of this was in 2005, when then president um, of Harvard, Larry Summers, was talking about this, um, conference about why there aren't more women in high-level math, science, engineering jobs, and what he basically said was that men are naturally more likely to be geniuses, or as he called it, have higher have aptitude, greater aptitude at the high ends. And so I saw that, and I thought, oh my god, it's greater male variability again. So a lot of these theories of difference, of naturalizing difference, keep coming up with different words or different technologies, but kind of the same basic principles so I think the women that I study would say hey wait you know maybe we should remember that they also thought this in 1890 maybe we could think about the historical context let's think about you know what 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 is the science that is supposedly proving the sex difference so those I think would be their two legacies for us yeah that, yes because we're so
0: bottom line on this is we need more women in science yes <laughs> yes that's, that's what i'm getting um uh, because we still do, we still do hear lots of studies every day. There's a study about we've studied this, and women are more this, and men are more this, and and then it gets applied into popular culture, and it just continues on and on, and we can never get over it. Uh, so, what is what is the takeaway of your book? What would you What do you want readers to get out of this book uh, when they read it? What is the main thing that's gonna stay with them? You think there were so many things in your book that were
1: wonderful that. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> You're really liked it. A very thoughtful um, interviewer and reader. Thank you. Um, I think the main takeaway message is that feminism and science go hand in hand. And yes, as you just said, the moral of the story is we need more women in science. <laughs> um, and also that that these some of the arguments that women made in the 19th century are still relevant today about women working outside the home, about female reproductive autonomy, and how central these are to women's overall equality. Co-parenting is another one. Co- exactly, yes. That was what my favorite chapter to write, honestly, um, was the um, chapter three about a lot of these feminist arguments regarding co-parenting and you know what men should contribute to the home to enable women to do more outside the home. That was another kind of example of, I thought, oh, God, is it... 1880 or, you know, 2015, <laughs> a lot of the same issues really resonate today.
0: Okay. Uh, that, that whole, I like, when well, you're talking about the home, that's another thing I noticed, too, the home and outside the home, this dichotomy still is mm-hmm. pretty much intact in, the, in these arguments. No one yeah. no one is, well, maybe uh, Gilman is. but
1: Gilman. yeah, uh, but Gilman no really wanted to go with her. End.
0: Right, but she <laughs> seemed to be the only one that sort yeah. of, like, said we need to kind of uh, break down this wall between, Work and home, you know, with the communal kitchens and that sort of the communal raising of children. Uh, We're we're still pretty much stuck with the structure uh, of the
1: public, private, home, work. Yes. And and a lot of the you know I gave the sort of Larry Summers example of of the about science of sex difference, but the other recent examples that really resonate with my book are the sort of Sheryl Sandberg lean in books. Oh yes. the, The There's a great, you know, recent literature of why haven't women broken, you know, into the top ranks of business or science or academia. And usually the answer has something to do with what people call the second shift and the fact that women still have to, you know, do the majority of domestic tasks and child rearing. So that's something that the women I write about were very much interested in. and They really realized and I think we've lost that aspect of 19th century feminist thought as we've tended to focus more on suffrage history.
0: But, you know, if you start questioning the separa- the separation of the work and home, you really are, are attacking the whole structure of a capitalist society. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. yes. This is Yeah. So this is where, like, the personal gets political.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> okay. Kimberly, <laughs> you've been so generous with your time. Um, I do have one final question for you is, what are you working on now? You mentioned it l- earlier, but...
1: Oh, yes. Thank you for asking. So right now I'm working on a biography of Helen Hamilton Gardner, who we've talked about a little today. She was the woman who donated her brain to science to prove that women's brains were not inferior to men's. But that was just one chapter in her hugely fascinating life. So her life mirrors almost exactly the first wave of feminism. She was born in 1853 and she died in 1925. And along the way, she's kind of a Forrest Gump character, if you will in the women's rights movement she pops up at all the major events she's you know close friends with elizabeth Cady stanton and then later Stanton's main rival carrie chapman Catt. so she's and she plays this pivotal role in the passage of the 19th amendment so she um she opposed the 1890 merger and was kind of banished from suffrage for her radicalism she had come to the public for as a prominent freethinker in the 1880s she was known as ingersoll and soprano so she sort of gets banished along with the other free-thinking feminists. But then in 1907, she and her second husband, who I think was a prominent uh, Civil War veteran, moved to Washington, D.C., and she lived right next door to the Speaker of the House, James Beauchamp-Champ-Clark, as he was known. And so the the suffragist, led by C- C- Carrie Chapman-Catt, recruited her back to the fold. They made peace with her. They made up. So she's the only one, um, the only person who kind of survived that 1890 split to come back and be rehabilitated. And she was uh, promoted to be the vice president of NASA in charge of congressional affairs. So she was the suffragist lead negotiator with Congress, including her next door neighbor, Champ Clark, and also with President Wilson. And she was also the suffragist charged with keeping Alice Paul and the younger, more radical suffragists in check. So... That's a really fascinating chapter of her life. The suffragists credited her charm and diplomacy with the ultimate passage of the 19th Amendment. She wrote, you know, several memos and did a lot of backdoor negotiations to get the suffrage bill out of committee and passed and signed into law. And then when it was signed, when it was ratified in 1920. President Wilson wanted to send a signal that women now have a place in federal affairs, and so he appointed Gardner, above all the other women suffragists, to this really high-profile post on the U.S. Civil Service Commission, making her the highest-ranking woman in federal government. So my book is kind of a biography of her, and it's kind of the story of suffrage and women's rights activism through her eyes. So I try to tell the story of the first wave of feminism by following Gardner around.
0: Oh, sounds fascinating. So yes, that's book thank, number two. Thank you, Kimberly. So thank much. Thank you so much, Lillian. I really appreciate it. And thank you to your to my listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in Gender Studies. I'm your host, Lillian Barger.